Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. Morning, guys. Let's go Luke chapter 4. We're going to jump right in today as we're walking through this narrative of the gospel of Luke. So Luke chapter 4, we're going to jump in on verse 14 today. This is a tough story that we're in today, a tough little passage. It took me a long time in studying this to try to make sense of, of this and, and make sense of what's going on in this story. Um, but let's jump into it. Verse 14 of Luke chapter 4. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Okay, now let's let's make sense of the of the setting here to kind of set the stage for what is going to happen in this story. So Jesus returns, Luke says, to Galilee. Galilee is a is a little region in this area of the country, and inside Galilee there are about 240 little cities and villages. So think think Green County. And inside of that, there's all these little pockets of, of small Jewish communities. This is Galilee. Galilee is the region that Jesus grew up. Now, Judea was the center of Jewish life, where the, where the temple was, where Jerusalem was. So we have two little regions here. And so Jesus comes and he returns to Galilee. Now, the way we would read Luke chapter 4, verse 14, if we didn't understand the context, we would assume that Jesus has just, if you remember last week, went through the temptation in the desert, and we'd assume, well, he goes straight from that and goes into Galilee to start something. Actually, what happens, there's about a year in between where Luke left off last week of the temptation of Jesus and now him entering into Galilee. If we jump into some of the other gospels, we understand what's happening, and here's what we have to know. Over the past years, since Jesus' temptation, that's the start of his public ministry, news about him is starting to spread. Word travels quickly in little towns, little villages, and news about this person named Jesus is spreading. And we turn to some of the other gospels, for example, John, here's, here's what we know about Jesus. In the meantime, since his temptation and now when he's going to enter into this area of Galilee, He has called some of his disciples around him. And not only did he call some disciples, but in doing so, he kind of revealed his supernatural knowledge that he's able to have. So there's a guy named Nathaniel, and Jesus comes up to Nathaniel and says, hey, uh, you're going to be my disciple. And and they have this interaction, and Nathaniel goes, hey, who do you know, how do you know who I am? Jesus says, well, as a matter of fact, I knew you were underneath a fig tree just a little bit ago talking to someone. He's like, Whoa. So little things like that are happening in Jesus' life over the past year, and there is starting to be this fever, this growing awareness of this guy named Jesus that's from Nazareth and wondering what he might be or whom he might be. If you remember in John, early stages of John, Jesus has had an interaction with a guy named Nicodemus. You guys heard this story about he must be born again? Okay, we're going to work on this. This would mean, uh, a hand up means, yeah, I've heard that story. I've read my Bible. Okay, okay, there we go. We're going to have to wake up a little bit this morning, guys. I need some help here. Uh, so, so he's had this interaction with a guy named Nicodemus who happens to be one of the most famous teachers of this region. News about that spread. 
Jesus has uh, a little time when he comes into the temple. And in the temple are money changers. Remember I told you about that a few weeks ago. They were, they were stealing people's money. And people that were selling animals for sacrifice at a really high price, you know what Jesus does when he enters the temple? Temple? He turns over the money changes table. He throws a fit. He says, this my father's house has become a house of robbers like he makes a scene. News about him has spread. Went to a little wedding. At the wedding, which is a multiple day feast, the, the, the person in charge of the wedding runs out of wine. Jesus' mom says, uh, hey Jesus, you want to help us with this? Boom. Turns water into wine. News about him has spread. So a year goes by, and Luke tells us that he's going to come into this region of Galilee, and he is going to be welcomed. The people are aware of him. John chapter 4, the end of it, says this. After two days, he departed for Galilee. This is right where we are in this time frame. Um, Verse 45, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Having seen all he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they had too had gone to the feast. So the, some of these people were at the temple whenever Jesus threw this fit and turned over everything. And now he enters Galilee and they are waiting on him. They're ready for him. They welcome him. Verse 16 of Luke chapter 4. And he came to Nazareth. Nazareth the town in Galilee. That's where Jesus was raised. Where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Okay, so let's make sense of this. So as any good Jew, on the Sabbath day, Jesus would go to the synagogue. Now, what is a synagogue? If you remember, back when we did the Old Testament, uh, the redemption through history, the temple got got, um, destroyed by Babylon. In the absence of a temple, the Jews started to meet in little houses, little buildings, and those eventually turned into synagogues. And synagogues were scattered all over the region. Almost every town or village had a synagogue. Just think a small building that was kind of their little church. And the custom was on the Sabbath day, you would go to the synagogue. Someone there, a man would read from the scriptures, usually give a little bit of oratory around a passage of scripture. The synagogue didn't have a pastor, it had a group of elders, it had a leader, and any time a Jewish teacher was coming through an area, through a region, it was very typical for a Jewish leader to invite that teacher to come and speak at the synagogue. So think, we have a prominent teacher who comes to Springfield, we reach out, hey, while you're here in town, will you come speak at our church? That's what's happened. So Jesus goes to the synagogue, obviously there's news about him, they're like, wow, this guy is different, he's a, he's a teacher, there, he, there's some wonder around him, let's invite him to speak at our synagogue. And here's what Jesus says in verse 17, now pause real quick. One of the things I learned in studying this passage about, about Luke, so Luke wrote the book of Luke and he wrote Acts. If you read Luke and Acts, and especially if you kind of jump back and read them as a whole, one of the things that Luke does in his writing is he will cite an Old Testament passage at the beginning of a new section of his writing, and then he will, he will use that passage to kind of develop a theme that will last several chapters. Then he will cite a different Old Testament passage. He will use that Old Testament passage to develop a theme. That's the style of his writing. And so Luke is going to 
reference an Old Testament passage in this story, and it's going to give us an idea as we go through the book of Luke where the next few months are going to take us. Verse 17. So Jesus stands up at the synagogue. You can imagine a group of people around him. They open a scroll, which is what they had the collection of scriptures on, these scrolls. The scroll was opened. Verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unscrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So if you imagine, they say, here, Jesus, you're going to read from Isaiah. Jesus takes the scroll, opens it, finds a particular place. Verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Remember, this is quoting from the book of Isaiah. He's reading this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, end quote. So he reads this passage of Isaiah. Now, we read that like, okay, great. Let's keep going, verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. So something in what he read made all these Jewish listeners all of a sudden be like, okay, what's going on here? Verse 21, and he began to say to them, so now his little orator, oratory, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now what happened here? Like any good teacher, Jesus gets invited to the synagogue to teach. He opens a scroll like every other teacher would do. He reads this Old Testament passage like any other teacher would do. And then every other teacher would say, okay, now, based on this Old Testament passage, here is what we should do or here's what we should believe, very similar to what we do. Here's what Jesus does. He opens the Old Testament passage. He reads it. The place that he reads is a prophecy on the coming Messiah. That's what this is, a messianic text. And here's what Jesus says. What I just read has just now been fulfilled. I am here. And that's why all the eyes are fixed on him. Here's Jesus' claim. Other teachers will teach you and tell you that this will happen in the future, the Messiah will come. But I'm telling you, I am the fulfillment of that passage. It's being fulfilled right in front of you. Now, there are all kinds of passages that Jesus could have read that talk about the coming Messiah. And it's interesting you chose this one, and it's interesting that Luke chooses out of all the, I mean, think about it. Jesus goes to synagogue every Sunday or every, every Saturday, probably every single time he gets invited to teach. So out of all the messages that Luke could have included to kind of start his gospel of, of Jesus' ministry, he chooses this text, and here's why, and it's going to cue us in for the next several months of the book of Luke, what this section of scripture Luke is about. What's the theme of this scripture? And here is what the theme of his scripture is for the next few weeks. The great reversal, or some theologians say the upside-down kingdom. Here's what Jesus just said, the Messiah's coming He's here, and as he comes, who's he coming to? The poor, the captives, 
the blind and the oppressed. Outcast. And Jesus has just told them the kingdom is going to look different than what you think it is. It's an upside down kingdom. It's a reversal in the belief. That those who were formerly considered as nothing are going to have a place at the table in this kingdom. The poor, the sick, the sinners, women. And this passage will define the ministry of Jesus. As we read through the book of Luke and understand this Jesus, who does he surround himself with? The poor, the broken, the captives, the blind, the oppressed. It's a reversal. So Jesus has just announced that the Messiah is here. Now they don't get it yet, and he's read this portion of Scripture, and he's saying, listen, they're here. Now, whenever they heard this, they're thinking, okay, the Messiah is here. He's coming to save Israel. We're going to rule the nation. We're going to kick the Romans out. We're going to be in charge. Verse 22. So he reads this. Remember, all eyes are on him. He reads it. Like, wow, this is amazing. Verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Now, this is a, a point in the story. I always had this backwards. I, I've heard this story before, and I had in my mind that Jesus read this passage of Scripture, said, hey, this, this, proph- this prophecy has been fulfilled right here, and they got mad. and like, no, that's heresy. Get out. That's not what happened. He just said, this prophecy is fulfilled. The Messiah has come, and look what happened. They spoke well of him and marveled like, wow, this guy has a way with words. This guy has a way of saying things. This guy has power and majesty around him. This could be the guy. And then they said, is this not Joseph's son? Now, this isn't a jab. This is not condescension, but this is amazement. Like, here's what they're saying. Because remember, Jesus grew up in this area. Many of these people knew him as a boy. And, there, and he reads this, and he has this way about him speaking. He has this, this authority. And people, they're saying, like, isn't this Joseph's son? whoa, what, what is this? Like he's different than they expected him to be. But they love it. They marveled. They're excited. They're astonished at this person standing before them that's claiming to be the Messiah. But the conversation's gonna take a little bit of a turn here. Let's go to verse 23. It's a long little section. It's kind of difficult to make sense of. I'll try to come back and, and help us understand. Verse 23. So they marvel, they're in awe, and Jesus says to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Now, pause right here. There's a lot of speculation on what Jesus means by this. He has just come from Capernaum and done a miracle, but then right after this, he's getting ready to go back to Capernaum and do some other things. So we're not sure if he's talking about like, hey, what you did here, if they're like, hey, do that little magic trick, you know. Or if it's like he's talking about what's going to happen in the future. We're not really sure. But he quotes this, verse 24, and he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So he's going to turn the conversation here. Remember, they're amazed, and he's like, well, let's talk for a second. 
Verse 25. But in truth, I tell you, when he says in truth, that's a Jewish way of saying, okay, what I'm about to say is very important. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. Okay, now here's what he's doing. He's quoting a story from 1 Kings. And again, on hearing this, these are good Jewish people. They've learned their Bible. Oh, okay, yeah, we know what you're talking about. Verse 26, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Now, Zarephath in the land of Sidon, that is a non-Jew. That is someone on the outside. Verse 27, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed. But Naaman, the Syrian, now Syrian, one of the arch enemies of Israel, here's what he says, there's many lepers in Israel during this time in 1 Kings, but the prophet goes to a leper that's a Syrian, and he heals him, verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Now what just happened here? Right? Is, is it fair we read this like, I don't understand. That was me when I read this. Like, I don't understand what happened here. He tells them that he's the Messiah. They're astonished. They're like, wow, this is amazing. This guy has authority. We like this guy. Then he keeps on talking, and the mood switches to, let's kill him. And they drag him to the edge of the town, get ready to throw him off the cliff. And I love what Luke says. He says, quote, he passes through their midst. I wish I knew what that meant. Is that like Yoda thing? Is that like they're getting ready to throw him, and like, where'd he go? <laughs> Is that just, he just, with authority, walked through, and they just kind of departed? I don't know. It's just a really cool sentence. He passed through their midst. You can do with that what you like. What happened? See, most people like myself, before I really studied this, thought that they were triggered and became angry because he claimed to be the Messiah. That's not why they became angry. They get angry when Jesus tells them that their ethnicity does not give them privilege with God. That's what he was communicating to them. So he tells them this story from 1 Kings 17. It's a random story about Elijah, the prophet, going to minister to a widow. And there's widows all around. There's a famine going on in the land. There's people dying because of lack of food. And Elijah goes to a widow, and he heals her son who's starving to death. The problem is that widow is not Jewish. She's a foreigner. Then he tells him another story from 1 Kings of Elisha, and there was a man with leprosy, and Elisha comes and heals this man with leprosy. But here's the problem. This man he heals was the king of a nation that was their arch enemy. Jesus just took a dagger to the heart of the belief of the Israelites.
is a direct attack against their moral values and their ethnocentrism. Ethnocentrism is what this is. It's an inherent belief that one's values or culture is superior above another. Because as a good Jew, that was the belief. And he went for it. And he said, okay, yeah, you're excited I'm here, but here's the reality. I've come and the kingdom I'm bringing does not look like your little ethnocentric Jews in the center, we're in charge of the world kingdom. It's going to look quite different. It's going to be upside down. So here's why the Jews believe this. So it goes back to Genesis. If you remember the story, God goes to Abraham. And he says, Abraham, you're going to have many children. Like Abraham, you see the stars? Look at all the stars. That's how many children you're going to have. And out of this group of people will come someone that will be the rescuer that will save the world. And he goes on to tell Abraham, I will bless you so that you can be a blessing, or I will bless your people so that you can be a blessing. That was the design of God for the Israelites, that they would be the group of people that would show the world who God was and what this God was like. But instead of being a blessing to the people, what the Israelites did is they took this idea that they were the chosen people and they said, yep, we are. And they became puffed up. And instead of being a blessing to the other nations, they lived in judgment of the other nations. They lived in condemnation over the other nations. They lived in seclusion. They hated Samaritans. They judged, quote, sinners. They made lepers outcast. And their ethnocentrism and their moral superiority infuriates Jesus, and he calls him on it. And as Luke, as Luke writes his gospel, I love, I make up words every week during, this, uh, during these things. As Luke writes his gospel, just pay attention over the next few weeks. How many times, more than any other gospel writer, how many times he includes non-Jews in his story? And... How many times he includes women in his story, women as the heroes? More than any other gospel writer, Luke is introducing this section that many theologians call the upside-down kingdom or the great reversal. Because the Jews had their list of who was in and who was out. And they could tell you. Go up to a Jew that, that time. Hey, can you tell me like who's close to God? Yep, I got it. They knew who was in and who were out. And Jesus will institute a great reversal. You guys can bring the, the marker board up. Let me try to visually show this as I was studying, trying to understand what's going on here and what, and what, what the belief of the Israelites are in this day. We're going to bring this in and then move it because we found out last week these lights just like blind part of you, whoever's in the angle. So I think it's this section over here. Sorry about the lights. Thank you, guys. So here's what they believe. If you're a good Jew living in this day, when Jesus shows, shows up in the synagogue, you knew who was in and you knew who was out. And at the very, at the very center was Judea. If you were a Jew, especially a Jewish man, women, you're going to find yourself kind of outside a little bit here. If you're a Jewish man living in Judea, you are the center of who's in. 
God favors you more than anyone else. God loves you more than us. You are more righteous than anyone else. You are the center. That's why the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, those are the people that Jesus is going to interact with all the time. And they are at the very center of this circle of who is in and who is out. The next one. Are Jews from Galilee. Okay, so Judea is the center region. Judea is where Jerusalem is, where the temple is. They were the most in crowd. The next circle outside of that were Jews, Jewish men, from Galilee. This is where Jesus was from. He was from Nazareth, which was a town in Galilee. That's why many times people would say this, could anything good come from Galilee? Remember that? That's what they said about Jesus. Like, whoa, he's from Galilee? Galileans talk different. They had an accent. So let's let's just go Arkansas, can we? They sounded different. Their belief a little different. (laughs) Could anything good come from Galilee? I mean, they're still Jews, but they're not from Judea. Well, outside of that, you had what's a... What's, I'll just put Jews, but what are called Hellenistic Jews. These are Jews that are living throughout the region. Maybe in Greece, maybe in Africa. They're still Jews, but they're not living in this area where Jerusalem is. They're not even in Galilee. They're kind of on the outside. They're still Jews, so they're kind of in, but they're not really with us. They're on the outside. Now, outside of that, you have what they called God-fearers. These are non-Jews, let's say Greeks, who believe in the Jewish God and therefore have kind of come underneath the umbrella of Judaism, but they're really not Jews by birth. Well, you can kind of be in, but you're on the outside. And then from here, by the way, if we could keep drawing circles, probably now we'd put women from each of these going out. And if we keep going, here's what we have on the outside. We have sinners, quote, sinners. And this could be anything from the life that you live to you're sick, you're blind, you're lame, because the belief was if that was you, you're cursed by God because of your sin. Sinners. And outside of that, have a term that kind of includes everyone else, pagans. Those that are on the outside. That's why when Jesus comes along and he tells a parable about a good Samaritan, you guys remember this? We just take, oh, the good Samaritan. If you're a Jew, if you're in Judea, Samaritans are your arch enemy. You hate them. They are on the outside. So when Jesus tells a story about a man getting beat up and some good Judeans pass by him and then a good Samaritan comes and takes care of him. Can you imagine the disruption in the crowd? What, a good Samaritan? So this was the belief. And we could probably keep drawing circles. They had their list of who is in and who is out. And when Jesus just came and he read that passage of scripture in the temple or in the synagogue, and he said to them, he tells them this story of people that are out here, pagans, 
that God came to, this is why they became angry, and this is why they're ready to kill him. They knew who were in and who were out. Nathan, you can come get this thing. Thank you. So Jews believed that the coming of the Messiah was the destruction of the people on the outside. That's what they believed. They're ready for the Messiah to come so the Messiah can finally take care of all the riffraff on the, on the external, on the peripheral. But here is what Jesus is going to communicate, and here's what Luke will communicate in, their, in his gospel. That the reality was that the people on the inside, the very center, they're going to find themselves on the outside, and the people on the outside are going to find themselves on the inside, the upside-down kingdom, the reversal. And that's why they wanted to kill Jesus. So during his life, Jesus will continually invert the circle. And let's try to put ourselves in the mind of a Judean man who believes with all passion that they are the center. They are the closest to God. They're the most righteous. They're the ones that will be in charge. That is what they believed. And then when this person that calls himself the Messiah will continually invert that circle, do you know why they wanted to kill him now? He is attacking their core belief. Just a few examples. Luke chapter 7, we'll get to in a few months. He'll, tell, he'll say about a Roman centurion. You ready? Pagan. Not only is a Roman, he's an officer, like he's in charge of oppressing them. Jesus will say about this Roman centurion, I have not seen as great faith even among the people of Israel. What? Like me, coming up and saying one time, I have not seen of Gretsch about this ISIS commander. I've not seen his greatest faith even among Hill City Church. What? That's what we just said. Tax collectors. They were sinners. They stole your money as a good Judean man. They took your money, a big percentage of it, and they gave it to those pagan Romans to oppress you. They were hated. Jesus will go eat with them. He'll call one of them to be a disciple. Another story where a, quote, sinful woman comes to the feet of Jesus and he defends her in front of this great crowd of men that were in the center. Luke 14, he'll ter- tell a parable about a man who's preparing a great feast and he invites all of the people that are in the town, like the, the people that are in the middle, all the who's who, he invites to this dinner and here's what happens, no of them, none of them show up. He tells us a parable that Jesus tells. So none of them show up to this dinner and so what the guy does, he says, well, to his servants, none of the people that were in show up at the feast, so why don't you do this, go out into the crowd, invite all the sinners and the sick and the lame and the blind, like invite them and they come to the fe- feast And they get to celebrate. And here's what Jesus is telling them. That's the reality of what's happening. Do you see why they wanted to kill him? It's the great reversal. The upside down kingdom. And Jesus attacks their ethnocentrism. He attacks their moral superiority. 
And he tells them, unless you Jews who believe you're in the center will humble yourselves, you will not be saved. Now, isn't it interesting? We know the story of Jesus. Who are the people that killed Jesus? The crucified people in the very center. The people that were in were the ones that killed him. So as we read this gospel, and, we, and now we think about, okay, here's what's going on. We're trying to make sense. We're trying to put ourselves back in this time period, put ourselves in the story so we can better understand who this Jesus was and what Luke's trying to communicate. It can't, we can't help but ask, okay, what about me? Like if I could draw this, bring this board up, and each one of us could take a turn, what's our circles look like? What's our understanding of who is in and who is out? Because here's what Jesus will say, that he came for people that realize that they are poor, they're spiritually poor, that we have no righteousness of our own, like nothing that I do here, nothing that I do morally, religiously gets me any closer to the center. We're poor there. Jesus says he's come for the captives, those that are in bondage. Anyone in bondage? Anyone have an addiction they struggle with? And maybe the belief is, if I could just fix this addiction, if I could just take care of it, I can get myself closer to the center. Well, the message of the gospel is Jesus came while we were sinners, while we were on the outside. And he's going to bring us to the center um, with his power. He came for the blind. Those, that, as in 2 Corinthians says, that the God of this age has blinded us. Like all of us were blind. And what we saw is, is the stuff of the world. And we live towards that. In the midst of that, God's going to come in. He's going to reveal to us the glory of God and the gospel. He's going to take our blinders off. We're going to see who he really is. And we're going to be brought in. See, Jesus is going to, and this is why I've told you before, we may not always like Jesus. He will confront our moral hierarchy. He will confront our ethnocentrism. Because here's the deal. When you believe you're on the inside, as I spent several years believing I was on the inside, when you believe that, you become very judgmental. And it's easy to kind of look down at all the people on the outside. And not only are you judgmental, when you see someone who you think's on the outside come to the table here, you're really bitter. How could, how could that person come up to communion? See, Jesus will invite us to look at our hearts and ask ourselves, what do our concentric circles look like? When we live with this ethnocentric view that says our beliefs, our cultures, our values, that's what's right, and everyone else needs to get on board with what I believe, when we live in that, we've missed what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We missed it. And Jesus will confront our beliefs and our values that are tied to our ethnicity, our race, our culture. Who confront it. 
and we talk about as a church, we've talked about this dream, right, of having this for the city center, this place where people can come and find healing and hope and, and, and classes and educate, like all these great things. And then we hope, we talked about this idea of this redemption ministry, we can start where people like all of us that need to be redeemed from something, need to work on our brokenness, can come and find healing. You want to know something that haunts me a little bit? What happens when the city that we say we're for starts coming and they don't look like us? What happens when the city that we're for starts coming and they don't talk like us? Parents, here we go. What happens when their kids start coming and they're in Sunday school with your kids and they don't talk like your kids do? What happens when they come and they smell different? What happens when they come and they don't vote like us? What happens when they come and they don't sing like us? One of my friends, uh, who's a black man, posted a picture and a screenshot of, of some music he was listening on the way to church one day. And I listened and I was like, dude, I can't even sing that. What happens when they come and they don't sing like us? You know what we need to do? We need to put them right here in the front and say, teach us how to sing like that. Teach us how to move like that. I tried to learn how to salsa dance one time. One of my friends named Andy, he tried to make my hips do it. I just can't do it. I just can't do it. Maybe one of these days. Like, and I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to me. Like, it's really great to sit here and have this vision of reaching our city. But I think if all of us would kind of step back and take a look, all of us might say, we're a little uneasy of that at times. And Jesus will invite us to look at things a different way. Our prayer is that Hill City would be a place where black and white and brown and young and old and rich and poor could gather around this table. That's our prayer. Man, and again, it sounds good, but that's tough. Because Jesus will confront our cultural values. He'll confront our moral superiority. And if we just be real honest, like we're in Springfield, Missouri, like not the most diverse place. Right, and there's a whole backstory to that I'll tell you one day, hopefully during this series. Um, so if we're going to do this, we're going to have to take some intentional steps, aren't we, as individuals? Like you may need to go on a mission trip. And, and mission trips like you're going to go and hopefully you're going to serve and bless. You, you know probably who's going to benefit more. You are because your worldview is going to be rocked. So you're going to sit and watch a group of Italians sing, and you're gonna think, man, I don't sing with that much passion. And you're going to Africa, and you're gonna watch a group of Africans sing and dance, you're gonna be like, man, that'd be cool if Hill City would be like that. Like, we're gonna have to take intentional steps. Some of us need to go to different areas of our city 
and interact with people that we on a normal week would never interact with. Why? So that our eyes can be opened to some different beliefs and understanding. Some of us need to go sit across and have a drink with someone and just listen to someone that, that views things totally different than us. Politically, culturally, whatever. And just say, I, I want to hear, I want to listen, I want to try to understand where you're coming from. So as a Christian, living today like we can't, and this is me, we can't sit in our own little bubble and think that we have this great picture of what the kingdom of God looks like. We must step out of that bubble. And it will be scary. I'll tell you, so I started, you guys know this, three or four years ago, Brad and I started working with a football team. And, uh, and I went to the first practice, got introduced, hey, this guy's going to be the chaplain of the team. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to go to the locker room, kind of hang out with these dudes. I was scared to death. Can I tell you why? Here's my belief. I'm walking in there. I have nothing in common with much of these people. You know what I learned? I have everything in common with those people. Except for I can't dance like them. So the gospel will invite us to step outside our circles and to listen and to learn and to try to understand. Like, here's a challenge for you. For us white folk here, sit across the table and try to understand the Black Lives Matter movement as opposed to just ripping it on Facebook. Just try to understand, just try to listen. Someone that would be sympathetic to Black Lives Matter, go sit across from the table from someone who is in a white superiority posture and listen and understand. That's what the gospel will invite us to do. So here's what's important on a passage like this, because I read this and it's just like, man, I've, again, all week I'm living in this. I'm like, uh, I want this, but I don't know what this looks like and I don't know how to even lead our church this way. Don't leave here with guilt. Don't leave here with guilt. Because here's what we always have to do every single time we read a passage in the New Testament or Old Testament. This is key. Every time we do it, here's what we have to say. What I just read, every command, everything that I've just read, Jesus has already fulfilled for us in the gospel. Do you realize that? Jesus broke the bonds of ethnocentrism. Jesus had conversations with people that you and I have turned our nose towards. He did it perfect. You don't have to. He's your hope. That's the gospel. He's your righteousness. But now, because Jesus did that, because Jesus crossed those bounds, and because I am in him, I'm hidden in Christ, I am free to cross those boundaries. And some of the times where other Christians told me, no, you can't go there. So because Jesus did, my righteousness is secure. I don't have to earn my way. But because Jesus did, now let me do likewise. That's the gospel. And so we're to follow his example. And so in closing, we get this beautiful picture at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 7, of what the kingdom of God looks like. Here's what it says, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, from all peoples and all languages. 
standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the kingdom of heaven. And the invitation of the gospel is, now may our living rooms, may our dining tables model the kingdom. Hill City, because of Christ, you're now free to have a multitude of ethnicity at your table. You're free to have someone from a different race at your table. You're free to have someone that has a different set of moral beliefs than you do to sit at your table. You're free with someone that has totally opposite political views to sit at the table. You're free with someone that is a totally different socioeconomic level as you are to sit at the table. Because the table is right here. It's the body and blood of Christ. And the cool thing about a church like this is in, in just like one minute, all of us from all different walks of life are going to come and this table will equalize us. We will all be the same. Sinners in need of mercy. And we can come in unity around this. May our tables and our living rooms reflect the diversity of the kingdom. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for Jesus. Because without him, we have no hope. And as people who in our sin would love to create circles, you didn't do that, and you are our righteousness. So in you we stand, and now may we do likewise. May we repent where we need to. May we pursue conversation where we need to. May Hill City be a church that the best we can can model the kingdom of heaven. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.